I've been talking a lot uh, in my Sunday lessons about Jesus. Two weeks ago, we spent some time in Mark chapter 5. We talked about Jesus healing a diseased, uh, a demon-possessed man and a diseased woman and a dead girl. I want to pick up on that from two weeks ago, really, today. And I want to talk a little bit more about Jesus as a healer and coming at it from a little bit of a different angle. But to get us there, I want to share with you some statistics. I found this on the internet, so I don't know if they're true or not. There was a website called What Are the Odds? But I want to share with you some statistics about things that happen to people. Not, not people as a whole, but like what are the chances of something happening to me? For instance, what are the odds of being struck by lightning? Apparently there are 1 in 175,000, which seems surprising to me. It seems kind of high. Um, being attacked by a shark, 1 in 11 million. Doesn't happen very often. Your odds are much better if you stay out of the ocean, by the way. Um, what are the odds of a woman giving birth to twins? One in 31. Congratulations, Brittany. You beat the odds. It is tax season. The odds of the IRS auditing your tax return are one in 119. So two or three of you, just expect it. Okay. The odds of catching a foul ball at a Major League Baseball game, one in 163. How many people here have ever caught a foul ball? Anyone? Several. Okay. This is interesting and a little bit frightening. The odds of being injured by a toilet, <laughs> one in 10,000. Anyone here ever been injured by a toilet? I thought if anyone raises their hand on that, everybody here is going to want to talk to you after this. Um, Winning the Powerball Lottery, one in 176 million. Those are astronomical odds. And some of you are thinking, so you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> yes, there is a chance. Of course, there's a one in 17,000 times better chance that you're going to be injured by a toilet. But you go ahead and play that Powerball. Now, don't come up to me afterwards and say, those aren't right. You know, don't believe what you read on the internet. I know that. I don't care if they're right or not. I really don't care if they're accurate. Because all I did was wanted to get your attention for the next statistic that I want to share with you. Because I'm positive that this next one is correct and accurate and spot on. What are the odds today that right here, right now, you specifically need healed? And I'm going to tell you the odds are one-to-one. A hundred percent true. You, right here, need to be healed. I need to be healed today. Which means we need a healer. And some of you might be thinking, I don't need healed. I'm, I'm fine. I, I feel great. And I'm not talking about just healed physically. I'm talking about healed emotionally and healed spiritually. What you say, what you do, what you think. Today, we need healed. The story of the gospel is the story of a God who cares about brokenness. And he cares about broken people. And healing was so central to what Jesus came to accomplish. 
He didn't just do it to draw big crowds. Healing was central to Jesus' mission. It was God proving that he has begun the process of healing a very broken world and healing very broken people. If you look at Matthew chapters 8 and 9, we're going to spend some time today in Matthew chapter 9, but for, for two chapters, Matthew starts listing healing after healing after healing. It's just, it's just a string of healing that Jesus does. And most of it's physical, for sure. And, and Matthew just goes from, from instance to instance to instance. Jesus healing lepers and paralytics and people who are demon-possessed, blind, mute, sick, diseased, dead, Sometimes he heals them on the spot. Sometimes he heals them from a distance. Jesus was preaching the good news of the kingdom, and Scripture tells us that he was healing every sickness and every disease. And then right in the middle of that string of healings, we read about the calling of Matthew. And we've looked at several instances in the last couple of months of Jesus calling his disciples. And in the middle of this string of healings, Jesus is going to call the disciple Matthew. And it's interesting how Jesus goes about choosing his disciples. He never asks for a resume. He never pins anything on a bulletin board. He doesn't uh, use a headhunting service. He doesn't go to the, the rabbinical schools and say, I need your best and your brightest students. Jesus chose people who seemed to be really strange choices pretty ordinary people with ordinary jobs, just like Matthew. Take a look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, there being a place where he's just healed, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Matthew was a tax collector. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now, I don't know if there's more to that conversation or not, but Jesus told Matthew, follow me. Matthew follows Jesus. And I think that it's interesting and maybe a little bit telling that the story of Matthew's calling falls right in the middle of all those healings. Now, Matthew is um, writing about his calling. Matthew wrote the book of Matthew. We're reading it in Matthew. So he says, Jesus healed this guy, and he healed this woman, he healed, healed, healed. He called me, and then he healed, 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 healed. Why did Matthew write in his own part of the story in the midst of all those healings? And I'm not sure of the answer to that. The preacher in me thinks, maybe Matthew wanted us to know, I was one of those guys who was healed. Not physically, but I was healed too. Maybe Matthew wants us to know, you know, my heart was kind of a mess. And my heart was kind of empty, and, and spiritually, I, I was all over the place. Maybe Matthew wants us to realize I was one of the ones who were healed. Now, right after Matthew's call, after Jesus you know, says, follow me, and he does, Matthew has a little bit of a party. He, he has a, a meal, a banquet. And he invites his friends, which are tax collectors. Now, you know your Bible well enough to know that tax collectors were just sort of automatically lumped into sinners as far as first century Jews were considered. Tax collectors were very much looked down on. So they had this dinner party, and to everyone else looking in at the party, it looks like it's just a bunch of shady characters, you know, a bunch of sinners, a bunch of sinful people. 
I don't have to tell you what the Pharisees thought of tax collectors. Verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? These Pharisees believed that when Jesus sat down and ate with this group of sinners, that he must have been condoning their lifestyle. And really in that culture, to eat with someone meant something. So the Pharisees get together and they ask the disciples, what, what's the deal here? I mean, what's going on with your rabbi? Why is he sitting down with that group of people? Why is he eating with those sinners? And it's interesting, they ask the disciples the question, but the disciples don't answer the Pharisees. Jesus answers the Pharisees. And what Jesus answers them, the answer that he gives, is crucial and critical as we talk about this idea of healing. And it is critical as we think about this becoming a healing place. Here's Jesus' answer. Verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's quoting Hosea, by the way. And then Jesus says, For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus is really giving kind of a one-sentence parable here. And in this tiny little parable, he quickly introduces three different groups. First is a doctor. Then he said there's this other group over here. They're sick. Okay? And then there's this other group over here. They're very healthy. Okay, who's the doctor represent? Not a trick question. The doctor is Jesus. Thank you. The doctors come for the sick. Who are the sick? Well, they're the people who are sitting at the table with them. They're the people who are messed up. They're the, they're the, they're the sinners. They're the tax collectors. They're the sick. Now, what do they look like? How should we think about them? Jesus says, these are the needy people. These are the people who need a doctor. They're, they're spiritual lives. They're, they're kind of messed up. No, they're not going so well. These are the people who are used to being despised. The people over here. You know, good, righteous, self-respecting people. They don't hang out with these people. They certainly didn't expect someone like Jesus to hang out with those people. But these are also people who are the sick, were probably pretty in touch with their own pain. These are the people who, who know what it's like to be looked down on. Matthew, I'm sure, knew what it was like to have people criticizing him, talking behind his back. These are the people who were in touch with their own brokenness. The women who had to turn to prostitution in order to survive. People who did things that, you know, that they weren't proud of. They were the sick. And they know that they're the sick. Then there's the healthy. There's the religious leaders. What do we think about them? How are we supposed to look at them? Now, what do they think about themselves? And for the most part, they 
think quite highly of themselves. They don't really appear to have very many spiritual needs. And they're pretty proud of that. You know, for the most part, we're doing pretty well. Thank you. Another thing about the healthy people, they tend to be, tend to be a little bit secretive. Later on in the book of Matthew, Jesus is going to address these people who think that they're healthy, by the way. Matthew chapter 23, talking to the same group of people. How terrible for you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs which look fine on the outside, but are full of bones and decaying corpses on the inside. In the same way, on the outside, you appear good to everybody, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and sins. Jesus is telling this group, you know, you look like you've got these well-managed lives. You look like you've got it all together. You look like you're doing so well. But on the inside, where it really kind of matters, boy, what a mess. The stuff that's going on inside, you know, it's pretty ugly stuff. There's a gap between the, these uh, people who think that they're healthy, what they are portraying, and what's really happening in their lives. Those are the healthy people that Jesus is talking about back in Matthew chapter 9. Let's go back to Matthew 9. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. For I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Who did the doctor come for? Easy question. The sick or the healthy? He came for the sick. Who did the doctor not come for? He did not come for the healthy. At least those people who, who believe that they're the healthy. He didn't come, he said, I didn't come for these guys. So here's a question for us. What category are we in? Are we in the sick? Are we in the healthy? Now, we all want to be in the group that Jesus came for, right? That's the group I want to be in. Except here's the funny thing about that. After a while, being broken and desperate and needy, after a while I start thinking, I kind of want to be in that group now. You know, I'm, I'm tired of being needy. I'm tired of being so broken. I, I kind of want to be in that group where everybody's got it all together. Uh, that looks so uh, attractive to me. And I think that starts happening with the church sometimes, too. You know, we, we don't want to always be the ones who are, are needy and realize that, okay, we've got all these issues and problems and struggles. I kind of want to act like that for a while. I kind of would rather act like, hmm, things are great, thank you. Got it all together. My life is perfect. Don't need anything, thank you very much. Now, here's the real question that, that I'm trying to get to this morning. What is the disease that these sick people are suffering from? You've got the sick people who Jesus came for. The doctor came. What's their disease? And Jesus is really clear about this. He's crystal clear about what the problem is. A doctor comes for the sick, not the healthy. Jesus says, I didn't come for the righteous. I didn't come for these people over here who think they're, they're healthy. I've come for sinners. Not come to call the righteous, but, but sinners. This disease that the sick are suffering from is sin. 
And I want to talk a little bit this morning about sin. Because sometimes when we use the word healing, two weeks ago we talked about Jesus healing, and we talked about diseases and um, death and demon possession. And sometimes that's kind of where we leave it. You know, healed from wounds and scars and, and hurts. And that's, that's real, and we need to talk about that for sure. But I want to talk about being healed kind of from, from a different angle and a different level. This disease, the real thing that threatens our souls, is sin. And Jesus is going to talk a lot about it. So the question becomes, how then do we pursue that healing? And how might God build a culture of healing here in this place? And of course, we need to understand and remind ourselves just how powerful sin really is, this disease. And the fact that we can't manage it on our own. That's why we need help. That's why we need a doctor. Because we can't take care of it on, on our own. This morning I want to talk to you about two aspects of sin. And, and the first is kind of where we usually start and, and usually where we stay. And that's sinful acts. Things that, okay, the Bible says do this, don't do that. Kind of, we, we kind of like that, by the way. We kind of like when somebody tells us, just do this, don't do that. Okay? Because I can understand that. You know, and the Bible has a lot of that in there. Do this, don't do that, and you'll be blessed. Go back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament is full of do this, this, and this. Don't do that, that, and that. And we're very comfortable with that. Like the Ten Commandments you know, are a list of do this and this, don't do that and that. Well, just tell me what to do, God. You know, just, just give me a list to say this is right, this is wrong. And God does, and we still can't get it right. Even with the list, even with what we're comfortable with, we still fall pretty short. For instance, anyone here struggle with honesty? Anyone struggle with just, I, I struggle with honesty. Okay. Interesting. I saw a study by William Backus that cites the, uh, some, some statistics that say people engage in acts of deception 200 times a day. We are dishonest 200 times a day. You say, no, no, I'm not. Mm. That's one. <laughs> but we do it without even thinking about it. It's just ingrained in us. Now we say, boy, I'm really sorry I'm late. The traffic was terrible. Well, the truth is, it wasn't important enough for me to do what it took to get here on time. Now, I could have been here on time if it was really important enough to me, but I'm going to blame it on traffic because I didn't leave the house, on, you know, whatever it was. By the tone of our voice, uh, our body language, uh, our, our attitude, we're always shading. We're always being a little bit deceptive. But then there's another aspect to this, and I think it's an aspect that actually goes much deeper. And that's sinful, deeper than sinful acts, and that's what the Bible calls sinfulness. Just deeply entrenched patterns in our lives, way below the surface. You know, kind of like a disease that eats away at us, and then just, just kind of comes out. We don't think about it. We don't even really notice it anymore. Now, you can call it an attitude or a disposition or 
or a habit, whatever you want to call it, but I don't know how to shut it down. And I don't know how to turn it off. Now, I'm jealous of people who have more than I have, even though I know how much I've been blessed with. I have this chronic ingratitude, even though God has been so good to me and people have been so good to me. This selfishness that I just can't seem to let go of. This, this sense of entitlement that somehow we seem to hold on to. Lustful desires. These, these thoughts that just, just kind of keep showing up. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And then in verse 18, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what's good, but I, I cannot carry it out. We talk a lot about that passage because those words seem so odd to us. But they're really powerful words that Paul is using. He's talking about his spirituality. And he's talking about his nature, his habits. He's talking about spiritual habits. And by the way, habits aren't a bad thing. Now, habits are a good thing. We all have habits and we all need habits. I don't want to have to learn how to tie my shoes every morning or sit down at a keyboard and type a sentence or drive a car. There was a time when I couldn't do any of those things. But I learned how and I worked on it and now you know, I tie my shoes, I type on a keyboard, I drive a car and I don't even think about it. It, it just happens. It just comes out of me. I don't have to worry about it anymore. I don't stand at the foot of my bed every single night and think, hmm, what side of the bed do I want to sleep on tonight? I sleep on the same side of the bed every night. For 30 years, I've slept on the same side of the bed. One side's not better than the other. It's just a habit. I don't think about it. I crawl into that side of the bed. Habits make life easier. A habit is a behavior that is so ingrained in me I don't have to think about it. It just happens. In fact, we have a, a, a word for that. It's just second nature. It's second nature to me to do those kinds of things. Without habits, life would be so much more difficult. We're, we're pretty much a collection of habits. That's why people who know you very well can predict how you'll react in certain situations because they've seen what you've done in other similar circumstances. Because we're, we're a collection of habits. But I'm going to tell you, if you don't pay very close attention to your spiritual habits, your spiritual life is going to be a constant source of frustration to you. The power to acquire habits, not a bad thing. Again, God kind of wired us that way. Except for this, sin has gotten so deeply embedded in us, the way we think and want and our desires, our perceptions, the way we feel, the way we choose, the way we walk and speak and listen and act and behave and relate. Sin has gotten to be one of our habits. And when that happens, we're talking about life and death situations. What Paul's talking about back in Romans chapter 7 is all those things, that evil, that wickedness, deception and pride and greed and racism and, and ingratitude, all that, all that sin. It just becomes second nature to us. And Satan is so good at what he does. Satan is so good at just planning those things and then they come out of us and we don't even acknowledge it. 
And so often we don't even understand that, that we're sinning because we're so used to doing it. Now, you can override a habit by sheer willpower for a little bit. You can just will yourself to overcome a habit, but you can't do it for long. Now, I come to church, I listen to a sermon, I sit in a class, I worship, I have community with my church family, and, and I feel regenerated, and I feel encouraged. And I say, well, you know what, I'm not going to yell at my kids anymore the way I've been yelling at my kids. Or I'm going to treat my wife like she deserves to be treated. I'm not going to look at pornography anymore. I, I'm not going to uh, disrespect my husband uh, the way I've been disrespecting him. And it works for a day, or a week, or a month. But eventually, our habits always override our willpower. They just do. And it's important for us to understand, because I think in a lot of ways, that's why people are so frustrated spiritually. I think we get frustrated spiritually because we, we want to just will ourselves to quit sinning. But our habits will always defeat our willpower. So our only hope is not for more willpower. Our only hope is for different habits. Our only hope is for Jesus' habits. And that's exactly what they were doing in the first century. They were spending time in the Word together. They were praying together. They were, they were sharing with each other, living in community. They were replacing old sinful habits with new habits, with Jesus' habits. And that's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 6 when he says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you're not under law, but under grace. Notice we just keep circling back to grace. You know, when we talk about Jesus, we just kind of keep circling back to grace. Paul is not saying, come on, more willpower. You need to toughen up. You need to set your mind right. Get this right. You can do it. It's not what he's saying. Nor is he saying, you don't have to do anything. God will zap you. God will take care of it. Now, Paul is saying there's something for us to do. There's a role for us to play. Paul says you need to enter into a new way. The Jesus way. Let God free you from those things that your willpower will never be able to free you from. You know, Jesus' teaching was so different. It wasn't a list of do this, don't do that. Jesus is trying to teach us a kingdom way of life with a whole new set of rules and a whole new set of parameters and a whole new mindset and a whole new heart set. And of course, Jesus is the perfect one to teach this. You think about Jesus. Obedience to the Father wasn't something that Jesus had to consider. Am I going to do that or not? It was just part of who he was. No, spending time with the Father. That wasn't something that Jesus said, I've got to carve out a few minutes here. It just poured out of him. His heart's desire was to spend time with the Father. Loving other people. That wasn't something that Jesus had to say, mm, 
Every time I meet somebody, I've got to go through this process. How am I going to treat them? What am I going to do? Am I going to be compassionate? Am I going to be a jerk? I don't know. No. Jesus' default mode was compassion. He didn't have to think about it. It just flowed out of him. It was a spiritual habit of his. But of course, you're not Jesus. And I'm not Jesus. Which means we're all broken. And we all need a healing. Romans tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. John says that if we say we have no sin, we're liars and we actually make God out to be a liar. We're broken. We're sinful. On our own efforts, we can't solve that problem, that sin problem. Now, we can try to hide it, and we can try to rationalize it, and we can try to deny it. We can be like the healthy people. We're really more like whitewashed tombs. But we can't fix it, and we can't cure it. Only Jesus can do that. I'll remind you where we kind of began this morning. Jesus came for sick people. Not for people who pretend like they got it all together and they're completely healthy. So this morning, what would happen if we all just admitted, I'm not the healthy one? What would happen if we all just admitted, I'm part of the sick group. I'm broken. I need healed. I'm the group that Jesus came for. Those those sinful acts and that sinfulness has just gotten deep inside me. And I can't fix it on my own. I desperately need Jesus. I want to say this with as much love as I can this morning, and I'll ask you to listen as gracefully as you can this morning. But I know that there are some of you who are carrying around secrets. Maybe it's, maybe it's a sexual thing. Maybe it's a financial thing. Maybe it has to do with a relationship, a marriage, a, a son or a daughter or a parent. But you're hiding it. And you're carrying that. And it is eating you alive inside. And it is taking every ounce of joy out of your Christian walk. To the point where coming to church is difficult. The point where getting in the Word is difficult. Then Jesus comes along and says, you are exactly who I came for. You are part of the group that I came to doctor. You're part of the problem that I came to solve. That sin problem that you have, I'm the one who can take care of that what Jesus is telling you. So the question we need to be asking is, Jesus, where do you want to heal me? How do you want to heal me? What have I been trying to hide? Maybe I've been ignoring it. Maybe I've been not being honest with myself or with God or with each other. Maybe it's just become a habit. And I don't know how to shut it down. Where does Jesus want to heal you this morning? Because the truth is, Jesus longs to heal you. 
He desperately wants to heal you. That's why he came. He said, I came for this group. I came for the people who are broken. I came for the people who are hurting. Not just physically, spiritually. I came to take care of the sin problem. And only Jesus can do that. She said, I didn't come for the healthy. The doctor's not here for the healthy. The doctor's here for the sick. I didn't come to call the righteous. Jesus came to call sinners. Just like me. And just like you. Our only hope is Jesus. Let's stand and sing.